Thank you. Good morning. Pastor John is away this weekend in San Diego visiting family. He will be back next week, and we're going to finish First Peter. <laughs> I promise he'll be here next week. We'll, we'll do First Peter starting next week. Um, if you were here last week, I hope you were, Pastor Mark brought, uh, wow, uh, to me, one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard given to a church about continuing the conquest out of Joshua 1 through 6. Each one of us has a call in our lives to serve the living God. And Mark was teaching us out of the Word of God that we, we need to be ourselves, we need to be servants of Christ, and we need to generation after generation after generation just keep serving Him. It is our hope, it is our prayer, if the Lord tarries, that this will be a multi-multi-generational church. We would love someday to hear that church celebrated a 100th anniversary. Um, I'll be in heaven, but, you know, that'd be great. And, uh, but not just 100 years of being a church, but a church that serves the Word of God line upon line like we do. So I really appreciated what Mark taught. If you missed it, it's online. really highly recommend you hear it. Today, today we're going to look at a word uh, that may be the most challenging word in the Bible. Single word. I've been puzzled by this word often because I've wondered sometimes in things going on in my life how on earth this word applies to my life, especially when things are not going well. The word is rejoice. We sing it. We read it. We save it. Say it. At Christmas time, we write it on cards or we get a card that says rejoice. The word of God we'll see, tells us that as we go through life with our ups and with our downs, it actually is possible that we can be thrilled, delighted in the Lord every single day. How on earth is that possible? Let's pray, and then we're going to look for the answers where we always look. We're going to open God's Word and see what He will teach us. Father, dear Father, when we open Your Word, Lord, we don't do it just to speculate. We don't want to hear the ideas of men. We want to hear your Holy Spirit teach us like you do so faithfully every week. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to see why we can rejoice in you every single moment of every single day. Father, in a room this size, there are people that are going through deep waters today. But even there, even in the darkness, Father, you shine. I pray, Father, we will see you and hear you as never before. And we ask this in the Lord's name. Amen. You'll turn to Philippians. <coughs> Chapter 4. We're going to read uh, verses 4 to 9. As you're turning there, you, you need to know Philippians uh, likely was a letter or an epistle that Paul wrote toward the end of his Roman imprisonment. The theme of the book of Philippians is how to find lasting joy, lasting delight in the Lord. Hardly a Roman prison would hardly be the place you'd think would inspire someone to write about peace and joy and contentment and being thrilled in the Lord. But that's exactly what Paul did. I also just want to note to you, Bruce Cook um, is one of our new elders. He sent me his study notes for Philippians. And a couple of weeks ago when I taught on Elijah... 
Karen Thompson gave me her notes from the Old Testament. And I don't know if you all give your notes to Pastor John or to Pastor Mark when he teaches, but it seems like every time I teach, people send me notes. <laughs> I, I, I clearly need them, and I, I use them, and I appreciate it, so thank you. Um, this is a family church, and we, we help each other. Let's read together Philippians 4, 4 to 9. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Verse 4 begins with an exhortation Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Always. Do you know what always means? Do you know what that word means, always? It means on every occasion. On all occasions. Rejoice. Let's get honest with each other. What about when life gets really painful? Or sad? Or stressful? How can we rejoice when we don't feel like rejoicing? How can God expect us to rejoice when times are hard or exhausting or heartbreaking? Well, God is not telling us to rejoice in those situations. Let's look at verse 4 again. You probably already saw this. I can tell you this. I have read this verse for years. and I looked right over this. I overlooked this. So, Let's read together again verse 4, what we're to rejoice in. The word in is important. Rejoice in the Lord. Always rejoice in Him. So God is telling us to rejoice in Him. Remember when Paul wrote this, he was not relaxing on the beach in Maui. He was rotting in a Roman prison. And the Philippians, the people that received this letter, they weren't on vacation either. They were being persecuted for their faith. This, these are situations you'd think where people would be miserable in the Lord. Yet Paul is writing, rejoice, be thrilled, be delighted in Him. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? We probably should define that before we go any further. Let's talk about what it means to rejoice in the Lord. And I want to start by saying what it is not. Rejoicing in the Lord is not a command to pretend like we're okay when we're not. Put a smile on your face and just walk around and grin because you're supposed to be okay if you're a Christian. To rejoice in the Lord does not mean that if you're a good Christian, you'll never go through deep waters and you'll need help from people. It doesn't mean that. And, and rejoicing in the Lord doesn't mean it's up to us to manufacture joyful feelings that we don't have. It doesn't mean that at all. I used to think it did. You ever try to make yourself feel happy when you're not? How does that work out? I've never been able to do it. 
So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? I'd like to share with you my definition. And I can tell you, it has taken me most of my life to understand this. To rejoice in the Lord means to come to my senses. Come to my senses and see God for who He really is. When I see the Lord for all and who He really is, I can't help but be delighted in Him all the time. My circumstances can hurt me, and they do. But that's on the outside. Nothing can stop me from rejoicing in the Lord on the inside. Because rejoicing in the Lord is not a feeling. That's what I used to think it was. I'd sit there and wait for that feeling to come. It's not a feeling. It's deep, deep down confidence in a God who is, loves us and is sovereign and is in control of each and everything we face all the time. God is wonderful. And he has a perfect plan for you and for me. That's why we sing, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. The world can be so sad and wicked. This is exactly why the Word of God tells us to rejoice in God, not in the world, not in our circumstances, not in other people, and not in ourselves. The only source for reliable, unchanging, never-ending joy is in the Lord. And our joy, then, is directly linked now to how we think about God. It's how we think about God. Um, The men, every Monday, first Monday of every month, we've been studying, getting together, we meet in the cafe from 7 to 9, first Monday of every month, studying a book by Tozer. And and A.W. Tozer says this. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he's right. If we have a wrong or we have a small view of God that's going to directly affect how we live and how we praise or how we worship or even how we can get through the day. I've loved the Lord since I came to him when I was 10. So that's 50 years ago, 51 years ago. I'm not counting. (laughs) And for a long time I loved him, but I had a, I kind of had a small view of him. I had a puny God. So I was much better at worrying in the Lord than I was at rejoicing in Him. So accurate knowledge, accurate knowledge of God is key. Accurate knowledge of God fuels our ability to rejoice. And where do we get accurate knowledge from? From here, right? From our Bibles. The place we can trust. Remember, joy is not a feeling, it's confidence. Deep down confidence in God. How can we have confidence in a God we don't know very well? Or putting it positively, the more you learn about who God really is, the more you're not going to be able to help it. You're going to rejoice. You're going to breathe in God and you're going to exhale rejoicing. So let's get to know him a little better for the next few minutes. Uh, There are really thousands of verses we could turn to right now to read about the Lord. I figured you had other things to do today, so we won't look at thousands But we will turn to seven different passages in the book of John. Please keep a bookmark here in Philippians. We're going to come back and turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to look at seven statements from Jesus Christ. Seven statements that are in Scripture called the seven I am's of Christ. Seven times in seven different places with seven different word pictures. 
Jesus told us exactly who he is. And he gave us seven ironclad reasons that we can be confident in him and rejoice in him no matter what we're going through. And when I say no matter what you're going through, believe me, I know what that means. I'm not trying to just give you Christian speak. It's hard. Life is hard. We need to have confidence in a big, big God. Okay, first I am of Jesus. John 6, 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Before Jesus said this, the day before, Jesus was in a remote area and he fed over 5,000 people with just five barley loaves and two small fish that he got from a boy's lunch basket. When the people saw this miracle, they wanted to make Jesus their king right then and there. They wanted Jesus to be the king politically. But Jesus didn't come to sit on a throne yet. He will. First time he came was to die on a cross. So Jesus went away. And the next day, the people all came looking for him, and they found Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember how Jesus got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee? He walked. Yes. He didn't walk around the lake like the people did. He just walked right across it, right across the top of the water. And when the people found him, look what Jesus said. Let's read together John 6, starting at verse 26, and we'll read up to verse 35, which will give us meaning for what Jesus meant by the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then the people asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread from God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen. Jesus knew why the people came looking for him. They came looking for them because they were hungry. They they wanted Jesus to make another meal. Last night, Jesus gave them dinner and a show. Now they wanted breakfast and another miracle. More bread. Give us bread like Moses produced the manna in heaven, in, in, in the wilderness. People came to Jesus not to fill their hearts. They came to Jesus to fill their stomachs. They didn't want Jesus to be their savior. They wanted Jesus to be their caterer. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He told them plainly that in him, and in him alone, he can satisfy every need we have, physical, spiritual, and emotional. People didn't understand what he said. They weren't listening to him. They were listening to their hungry stomachs. They were legitimately hungry. They went all night. They were all famished. But they were so hungry, they missed 
the Son of God standing right in front of them offering eternal life. They wanted wonder bread instead of eternal life. Makes me wonder how often me and you, maybe, have been so distracted by other things that other things have drowned out the voice of the Lord standing right in front of us trying to offer us something much more than what we were looking for. Let's look at the second I am, John chapter 8. Love John chapter 8. John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. This is really beautiful. When Jesus said this, it was during the uh, Festival of the Tabernacles, which is also called the Festival of Light. When Jesus went to the temple, he went at dawn, the Bible tells us. And where he sat, he would have been sitting by two large golden lampstands. And on these lampstands would be hanging all these smaller lamps with, uh, that were still lit, undoubtedly, from the night before. So picture Jesus sitting down to teach, and he's, he's bathed in the light of all of these lamps that are flickering on his face and on his shoulders and casting their patterns all over the floor every time a morning breeze disturbed the flame. Then it was dawn and the sun was rising and just starting to paint that golden light of the first light of day out into the outer courts. And in that illuminated setting, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. He who walks in me, follows me will never walk in darkness. The Jews listening to that would know exactly what Jesus meant because their forefathers left Egypt with Moses and they followed God's pillar of fire through the darkness in the wilderness. And just like that pillar of fire led them to new life, the light of Christ leads us to new life in him, eternal life. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. How do you do in the dark? Our human eyesight isn't too good in the dark. You notice that? One time, several years ago, my wife and I <coughs> got a little summer cabin up in Big, not in Big Bear, in Kings Canyon. And it was the one at the very end of the row there, and we're city people. We don't know how to go to the mountains, so we didn't bring flashlights. We didn't bring anything, and so we parked the car. It was pitch dark, and when we got out of the car, it, you couldn't even barely see your hand in front of your face, but we just knew to walk that way. So we're walking. There's no light on the path. It's dark, and I promise you, everywhere I looked, I swear I saw a black bear. I thought I saw black bears everything. So we're walking and walking, and finally, oh, we were so relieved when we saw our cabin and the light in the window told us we were home and we were safe. That's what the light of Jesus does for us. Everywhere we go, no matter how dark it gets, his light tells us we're home and we're safe. Let's look at the third I am, John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the gate. I am the gate. What kind of gate is that? context for this. Jesus had healed a blind man the day before at, uh, at, on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were religious leaders and um, they were outraged that Jesus would break their law by working on the Sabbath to heal this blind man. The Pharisees were self-righteous hypocrites. They pretended to love God, but really all they loved was themselves and their rules and regulations. Let's read together how the Pharisees, these learned men, got totally outclassed by this man that was formerly blind. Uh, look, look back at chapter 9, John 9, starting at verse 26. We'll read up to the place where we were. John 9, 26 to 34. Then the Pharisees asked him, the man who was blind before, what did Jesus do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> Come on, you've got to love this guy's attitude. He just got his eyesight, and wow, he's, he's bold. Then the Pharisees hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. Fellow meaning Jesus. You are Jesus' disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, meaning Jesus, we don't even know where he comes from. <laughs> Look at verse 30. The former blind man answered, Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, the Pharisees replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You ever meet somebody like that? Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. That's them. Right after this happened, Jesus found this former blind man and spoke to him. And when he heard Jesus speak, he immediately worshipped him. It's important that we understand that he heard the voice of the Lord and he recognized the voice of the Lord and he, rec- he worshipped Jesus at his lo- as his Lord and his God. The Pharisees also saw this, and they confronted Jesus. Let's see how that went in John 10, starting with verse 1. John 10, 1 to 10. Very, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter, by, enter the sheep pen by the gate, but cl- climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4 says, When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Verse 6 says, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So in verse 7, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate. For the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Pharisees didn't understand Jesus' figure of speech. They should have because sheep were everywhere in that day. For us in Anaheim Hills, we may not have gotten it right away. We're not around sheep all the time. As close as we get to sheep is a wool sweater, right? These people knew it about, all about sheep. Every night, the shepherds would bring their sheep into the city and put them in a common sheep pen or sheepfold. This sheep pen had only one gate, and there was a gatekeeper at that one gate, and he was the one that would open the gate for the shepherd, and only the shepherd could come in, and only the shepherd could go out. Sheep are very simple creatures, but they have a remarkable gift. They are gifted at recognizing the voice of their very own shepherd, and they will ignore or run away from any other voice that is not their shepherd. So when Jesus talked about sheep, he meant the ones that are his. He meant the people that are listening only for his voice, like the blind man. The former blind man saw Jesus, heard his voice, and immediately worshipped him. And when Jesus talked about thieves and robbers, he was talking about people that were trying to steal from God's house, like the Pharisees. Jesus declared that he is the only gate to salvation and life. What kind of life can Jesus give us? Verse 10. Verse 10. 
I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When we come to Christ, we may come to Him in a very battered, broken, weak, maybe mundane and dreary condition. But the Lord loves us too much to leave us in that condition. So He brings us in and gives us pasture, which means He, in Christ, we are fed, we are protected, we are nourished. And then He gives us life to the full, to the utmost. Gives us more than we can possibly imagine. In Christ, we can become everything He created us to be. And our lives can be more than even on our best day we could ever imagine. Is that worth rejoicing in? The knowledge of that every day? Right after Jesus declared He was the gate, look at uh, verse 11. The fourth I am of Jesus. He said, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. Let's read verses 11 to 15. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the, the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. It's interesting that we get our word pastor from the same word used here for shepherd. It's a Greek word that speaks of sacrifice, not entitlement. A good pastor, like a good shepherd, loves, cherishes, and sacrifices himself for the flock. A bad shepherd, like a bad pastor, thinks the sheep belong to him. The flock is there for his benefit. That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. They were bad shepherds. Okay, why do you and I need a good shepherd? Why do we need a good shepherd? Well, because of verse 12. Wolves. Wolves. Wolves are coming. Wolves may already be nipping at your heels today. Sometimes life is a wolf and it wants to rip you apart. It wants to scatter you, scatter you away from the people of God and away from God himself. When wolves come, the sheep are helpless. If you've ever seen a sheep try to defend itself against a wolf, the sheep does not do well every time. When wolves come, the sheep are easy prey if the shepherd runs away. But our good shepherd Jesus has laid down his life for ours to save ours. So when the wolves come, and they will, remember your good shepherd laid down his life for you, for you and he is fighting that wolf on your behalf. You don't have to fight it alone. To me, that's really worth rejoicing every day of my life. Fifth I am of Jesus, John 11:25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. A beloved friend of Jesus had died. His name was Lazarus. <coughs> Jesus went to Judea where Lazarus lived with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. By the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus had died. He, had, he was in his tomb for four days. 
Let's read uh, John 11, verse 20 to 26. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And now Jesus makes one of the most incredible statements in the entire Bible. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? In this one statement, Jesus overruled everything most people think about death. It's human nature to be afraid of death. You guys know Woody Allen, the actor, writer, director? He said, um, he said I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. Very wise. He also said, oh, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. We fear death. But Christ said we have nothing to fear in death for the believer because Jesus has absolute power over death and absolute power to grant us everlasting life and to prove that he had that he turned and raised Lazarus from the dead. So nothing, nothing that we typically think about death will happen to us if we put our faith in Christ. Nothing. Most people believe that death is the end. That's the end of our individual existence. To this, Jesus says, nonsense. Utter nonsense. It's not true. The lives we know, the lives that are, we're so familiar with, will keep right on going. We will never die. Dallas Willard is one of my favorite authors. I've told you about him before. He wrote a book called The, the Divine Conspiracy. And let me read what he wrote about this particular passage. He said, Jesus' meaning was that those who love and are loved by God are not allowed to cease to exist because they are God's treasures. He delights in them and intends to hold on to them. If you are in Christ, you are God's treasure. He delights in you. He delights in you. He, tend, he intends to hold on to you forever. And he can. He's the one that has the power to do that. So these lives that we know will never stop. Do you make plans for the future? How far out are you thinking? Like summer? Maybe graduation? Maybe retirement? If we are in Christ, it is legitimate and fine for us to be thinking about what we hope to be doing thousands and millions of years from now because we will never die. It's like we sing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Like our dear friend Elsie, who went home to be with the Lord. Of course, something is going to happen to these physical bodies that we occupy. There will come a time, a moment in time, where we're going to leave them at the grave, but we're not going to miss these bodies, and I'll, I'll read to you why. Philippians 3, verse 20 to 21. This is wonderful. Philippians 3, 20 to 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, 
by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Oh my gosh, do you want a glorious body? I do. This isn't it. I want one. I want one of those. Do you want a body that will never age, never get sick, never get injured? There's no expiration date. It goes on. It looks as good now as it will trillions of years from now. The Lord is promising that he will transform these lowly bodies we have into one like his that is perfect and everlasting. Perfect. You'll have a perfect body. Okay, if you're a little older, you're a little older, do you ever look at a picture of yourself in your prime and you kind of sigh? Oh, you just wish. Oh, I'd like to get that youth back. I'd like to get that figure back. Whatever you want, whatever you don't have, you want to get it back. Well, guess what? When we go to heaven, when we go to be with the Lord, the body he's going to give us will outshine even us in our prime. It'll make us, our prime look bad. And it'll never change. Not ever. Not ever. In the Bible, death is sometimes referred to as falling asleep in Jesus. This is meant to help us understand that death for the believer is no more scary than nodding off, like some of you are doing now. I don't... I don't believe the Bible teaches that when we fall asleep in Jesus that we go into some kind of a soul sleep where we are unconscious. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Let me turn to one place for an example. There were many. But Matthew 17, verses 1 to 3. In Matthew 17 we read, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. Moses lived 1,400 years before Jesus was born. Elijah was about 900 years before. Yet here they were alive and conversing. They were not sleepwalking. They were with Christ. Peter recognized them for who they were. We don't know how Peter knew who they were. I don't know if they're wearing name badges when they come to earth. Moses, Elijah. I don't know. But Peter knew exactly who they were. Um, let me read you what Spurgeon writes about this passage. Spurgeon writes, from this passage we just read, we see saints long departed still alive, live in their personality are known by their names and enjoy near access to Christ. Wow. Evangelist Dwight L. Moody said this toward the end of his life. He said, One day soon you will hear that I am dead. Don't believe that. I will then be alive as never before. For those of us in Christ, we will never get a death certificate. You know what we'll get? We're going to get a birthday card. Because the day that we leave this earth will be our birthday into everlasting life with the Lord forever. And our life just keeps right on going. That's worth celebrating every day of our life, isn't it? Even when things are hard. Sixth I am of Jesus, John 14, 6. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
A short time before Jesus was going to go to the cross to die, he was comforting his disciples by telling them that he was going to go to the Father. And then he promised that he would be back for them so they could be with him forever. Thomas was one of his disciples and he said, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? And in John 14:6, Jesus answered Thomas and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Lots of people wonder if there are many ways to God. Our Lord is so kind. Our Lord knows that this is the most important question we can ask. Are there many ways to God? How do we get to God? So Jesus wanted to make sure he was very clear and very plain. So nobody needs to get it wrong. Nobody needs to be confused. Jesus said clearly, he is the only way. And in Christ, we have full access to Almighty God 24-7. We have access to the way, the truth, and the life of God himself. That's what Jesus gives each one of us. Seventh I am of Jesus, John 15, 1. I am the true vine. Jesus, continuing to talk to his disciples, wanted to make sure they understood the relationship that they and we will always have. Jesus isn't leaving. He will always be here with us. And he wanted to make sure everyone understood what that relationship was. So Jesus said, John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Look also at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the Son of God himself is our vine. In the Son of God, we have access to the fullest life possible, the maximum. And God the Father is lovingly and personally overseeing each one of our growth. He's the vine dresser. And he comes along sometimes and he has to prune off some branches of us. He has to prune some things that we don't need because God's goal for you and for me is that we will flourish and we will be everything he created us to be. In Christ, we can do more things that we never thought possible. Apart from him, can do nothing. Seven IMs of Christ. Seven IMs, seven pictures, seven reasons why we can have the deepest confidence in our Lord every single day of our lives and rejoice. So if you still have your bookmark in Philippians, let's turn back to Philippians and we'll wrap this all up now in kind of a take-home box. Let's read again and see if these words take on any extra meaning now to us. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Remember, join the Lord is not a feeling. It is confidence in Him. Accurate knowledge is the key to our confidence. And we just saw seven reasons why we can be thrilled right now, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we've lost in Him every day of our life. For homework, we should all go home this week and see how many more reasons we can find to rejoice in the Lord. Lots of other places to look. I'd recommend you start in uh, the book of Psalms. I thought about reading some Psalms, but we just don't have time. But I'd like to recommend to you four of my favorite Psalms, but really you could go from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 and find gold. Psalm 34, Psalm 103, Psalm 139, and Psalm 145. Wow. Listen, this is good for you. This is a health check. Go home and read Psalms. And if you can read the Psalms and you're not feeling like rejoicing, check your pulse. 
Go to urgent care. You've got a problem. Verse 5 of Philippians. Let your, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Gentleness can also be translated sweet reasonableness. Many people think Paul actually coined this phrase for this. It's not really a Greek word. He made this up. Sweet reasonableness. You know what this means? It's great. When we rejoice in the Lord, we're easy to get along with. We are. You know why? We're not pressing to get our, get our way all the time because we're looking out for others. We're looking out for the interest of others. And we don't argue because we're happy to let the Lord fight our battles. And we know the Lord is near. He is right here with us every day. And we also know that his second coming could be any minute before this sentence is over. He could come. And with that knowledge, it changes our priorities. It has to. If we understand this, it has to change our priorities. We, all the temporary things that we used to fuss about and worry about, they get lower on our list and we start to embrace more and more and more the eternal things of God. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, pre present your request to God. We rejoice with thankful hearts because we know we're certain God is in control of everything, even the things that hurt. Even the things that make us cry. Even the things we don't understand, He is in control. So we place our concerns into His big hands and we leave them there because we know only He can care for them and He only wants what's best for us now and forever. Verse 6, did you notice that everything is a topic for prayer? Absolutely everything. There is no detail in your life that God doesn't care about. You never bring a detail to God where He goes, I don't care about that. In the Word of God and in this church, there is no such thing as something too small to pray for. Verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoicing in the Lord doesn't just give us peace of mind like a good set of tires does. Rejoicing in the Lord gives us something far greater. It gives us the peace of God. The peace that Almighty God enjoys, He wants to give to you and to me to guard our hearts. His peace. Spurgeon defines God's peace as the unruffled serenity, unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God. Do you want to be unruffled? Do you want infinite happiness? God's peace transcends all understanding. You can't define it. You can't explain it. But there's nothing like experiencing it. God's peace guards our hearts and minds. Guard is a military term. God's peace is like placing a sentry to watch over our hearts and minds. Why do we need that? Why do we need a guard over our hearts and minds? Does your mind ever run wild? Does your thoughts ever take you places you don't want to go? How about your hearts, your emotions? Do they ever trick you into saying and doing things you regret? Especially when you're going through deep waters or you're stressed? Do you ever have something you want to stop thinking about and you tell yourself, well, stop thinking about it. What happens? Focus on it even more. And if you're brokenhearted, do you ever tell yourself to stop crying? How does that work? Only God's peace, only God's holy guard can put a 
sentry at our minds and our hearts. And in that peace, we rest in him. And we can't even explain why we're not thinking about it and why we're getting through it, but we are because of his loving protection and control. Verse 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Good remedy for our minds that want to go off in all directions. Think about these things. Look, we're like human machines. What we put into our mind comes out of us in our attitudes and in our actions. Right thoughts lead to rejoicing. Wrong thoughts lead to discouragement. And now we come to verse 9 of Philippians, and we'll close with this. This is a challenge not for me. If I give you a challenge, it means nothing. This is a challenge right from the Word of God for each one of us. Verse 9, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So here's our, here's our decision we need to make at 12, 11 in the afternoon here on Sunday. What do we want to do with these words we just received from the Lord today? What are we going to do? Are we just going to let them go in one ear out the other? So we leave here just an hour older? That's it? Or will we put what we've learned into practice? The things we've learned about our Lord. We saw that he is the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. What better news are we going to hear today? What better news are we going to hear? Who else other than Almighty God deserves our complete confidence so we can really, truly rejoice in Him even in our darkest days? One of my favorite songs we sing here at this church is Jesus Paid It All. I love this song for two very important reasons. First, it refers to me by name. It calls me by name. Secondly, every time we sing it, it challenges me to see my Lord more clearly and more powerfully than ever before. And I cry every time we sing it. First verse goes like this. I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to sing it. The first verse says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Here comes my name. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thy all in all. In the privacy of our hearts, we have to answer that challenge from God's word. Right now where you're sitting, are you rejoicing in the Lord? Is Jesus your all in all? Or is something in your way? Or are you looking somewhere else? Our prayer team will be up here as we close in prayer. If you want to pray about anything, there is nothing too small to pray about and nothing too big to pray about either. They would love to pray with you. And let's close in prayer together. Father, you are our Lord and our God, who is like unto thee, O Lord. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Thank you, Father, that you bring us into your holy gate into your pasture to give us nourishment. Father, this world is hard on us. We lose our way so easily. Things can hurt so bad we don't even know where to turn, but we do know where to turn in you. You are the vine, Father. We get our, we get our life from you, our full, rich life. Father, I pray 
Let no one leave here today unchanged. Don't let anyone leave here today, Father, just an hour older, without coming to terms with who you are. Father, let us see you and know you more clearly than we ever have before, so that we can clearly be go out of these doors today rejoicing in you, even in hard times. We can rejoice in our wonderful God and the wonderful plan you have for us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.